Good evening. Fine then. Be that way. Tonight we'll be looking at the Book of Lamentations. I did think about giving you a reprieve from all the lamenting, but I decided against it. And that just justified it for me. I said, you know, good evening, and nobody talked to me. So clearly you're not done. Lamentations chapter 2 tonight. Tonight we'll be looking at verses 2 to 9. 7 o'clock you said, right? <laughs> Lamentations chapter 2, verses 2 to 9. The Lord hath swallowed up all the habitations of Jacob, and hath not pitied. He hath thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He hath brought them down to the ground. He hath polluted the kingdom and the princes thereof. He hath cut off in his fierce anger all the horn of Israel. He hath drawn back his right hand from before the enemy, and he burned against Jacob like a flaming fire, which devoureth round about. He hath bent his bow like an enemy. He stood with his right hand as an adversary, and slew all that were pleasant to the eye in the tabernacle of the daughter of Zion. He poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was as an enemy. He hath swallowed up Israel. He hath swallowed up all her palaces. He hath destroyed his strongholds, and hath increased in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. And he hath violently taken away his tabernacle, as if it were of a garden. He hath destroyed his places of assembly. The Lord hath caused the solemn feasts and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion, and has despised in the indignation of his anger the king and the priests. The Lord hath cast off his altar, and he hath abhorred his sanctuary. He hath given up into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord, as in the day of a solemn feast. The Lord hath purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He hath stretched out a line. He hath not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore he made the rampart and the wall to, to lament. They languished together. Her gates are sunk into the ground. He hath destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles. The law is no more. Her prophets also find no vision of the Lord. Let's open in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we just uh, do thank you once again for being able to gather here tonight and um, sharing some fellowship, Lord, and to bring praises to you, Lord, and now to hear a message from your word. I pray, Lord, that you would just uh, be with me tonight, Lord, that you would just calm my nerves and that you would just uh, speak through me, Lord, and uh, give me the right words to say. I pray that you just give me the wisdom and the understanding I need, and I pray that you would just forgive me if I do say anything that's wrong or against your word, and I pray that those things would be forgotten so that only your perfect truth would remain. I pray, Lord, that you just prepare our hearts and our minds for this message, that uh, we would all understand it and that we'd be able to apply it to our lives. Jesus' name. Amen. Looking through the book of Lamentations, and when we look through Lamenta Lamentations chapter 1, what we saw was Jeremiah laments at what happened to Judah. He's describing for us the terrible scene. And then as he comes to chapter 2, his lamenting changes to lamenting, lamenting God's anger, God's wrath. 
and it was God's wrath that had brought about this destruction or motivated God to punish his people. And Lamentations chapter 2 is full of these examples of, of things that point to God's anger. In verse 1 we find the, the, with the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. In verse 2 we find that the Lord showed him had not pitied, and he had thrown down in the, his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. In verse 3, we find that he has cut off in his fierce anger all the horn of Israel, and he burned against Jacob like a flaming fire. In verse 4, we find that he poured out his fury like fire. In verse 6, we find he, that he despised in the indignation of his anger. And in verse 7, we find that he had abhorred his sanctuary. The subject of anger is found throughout this entire chapter, and it is God's anger. It is because God's anger has come about because of the constant rebelling of his people. He has chastened them time and time again, trying to correct them, trying to bring them back to him. But each time they have gone astray, each time they have forsaken him. And so finally... God decides to use a, a bit more tough love with them. It's time for them to see his full wrath. And the instrument of this wrath was the Babylonians. And the Babylonians were perhaps the best way to do this because the Babylonians were getting sick of, his, of Judah as well. By this time, this would be the third time that the Babylonians had had to come and deal with the rebellious Judah, Judeans. They first conquered them, and the Judah rebelled. So Babylon came and had to reconquer them. And then Judah rebelled again. And this is the third time they've come into this land. And no doubt, they were getting sick of it. This was the third time they'd come to pacify this pe these people, and there would not be a fourth. The Babylonians' anger over the constant rebelling of Judah would have been similar to that of God's anger at the constant rebelling of his people. And God's anger is given to uh, described for us in different ways throughout this chapter. And the first thing that is described for us is how his anger had no pity. His anger had no pity. Look with me in verses 2 and 3. The Lord hath swallowed up all the habitations of Jacob and hath not pitied. He hath thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He hath brought them down to the ground. He hath polluted the kingdom and the princes thereof. He hath cut off in his fierce anger all the horn of Israel. He hath drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. And he hath burned against Jacob like a flaming fire which devoureth round about. The Lord's anger here has no pity towards the sinful. He consumes all of the habitations, their homes were destroyed. Part of his tough love was to evict them from the promised land. And so he destroys their homes. They have nowhere to dwell, nowhere to live. They have no place to go back to. He didn't spare even the, the poor or the weak. He didn't consider the, the, 
the strong or the powerful should be spared either. All throughout the word of God, we find that the Lord has no respect of persons. He treats everybody equally. And this applies when he's judging them. had no pity to the weak, to the ignorant, to the downtrodden or downcast. All had sinned and all now would, would suffer under his wrath. He had no pity. He threw down the, the, in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. They had lost their homes and they lost all the places of refuge, the places to run and hide trying to wait out the storm was falling on them. There was no sanctuary offered, no place where they could hide from the Babylonians or from God's wrath. He brought them down to the ground. The mighty fortresses were laid low. They offered nothing. He had polluted the kingdom and the princes thereof. The word polluted here carries with it the idea of making, co making common or to wound fatally. A kingdom that was once powerful, a kingdom which once held a respectable position, a privileged position, was laid low. The princes who once held all responsibility for the care of the people, princes who were noble and made common. The kingdom would be made no more. This was this is the this word has it with it the idea is the same idea of when people take the Lord's name in vain, they make it common. is now used to describe what the Lord did to his people. He made them common. He wounded them fatally to destroy them. Not completely, but his wrath did fall on them. He cut off in his, in his fierce anger all the horn of Israel. The horn was is often used as a symbol of strength. An animal that has a horn would often use the horn to defend itself against predators or use it to attack prey. And here it describes God in his anger cutting off the strength of Israel or cutting off the horn. He removed their strength from them. They would not be able to offer any resistance to him or their enemies. He had drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. And here we find that God, both God's love and his anger. While the people of Judah and Israel had followed God, while they had done what he had asked them to do, he held back their enemies. None could go further than what he dictated. When they began to sin, he would let their enemies gain ground when they turned back to him, he would push them back. None could go further than what God dictated. And had they remained faithful, the Babylonians would never have been able to conquer them. The Medo-Persians, with all their numbers, would never have been able to touch them. 
the Grecians would never have been able to overthrow them and the Romans, for all their might, would have wasted themselves on the Lord's defence. God holds back the enemies of his people. None can go further than what the Lord dictates. Consider the story of Job. Satan could not touch Job or anything that God protected. He had to get permission to even begin to affect Job, to even touch his family and his belongings and then himself. And even then, Satan could not go any further than what God dictated. Even in modern times, God holds back the enemies of Israel. In all normal circumstances, such a small nation would never be able to stand against so many enemies who surround them and have a hatred for them. And yet, somehow, this small nation can resist the attacks. The same is true for Christians as well. God holds back the world from destroying his people. He keeps them safe. Yes, we do suffer. We do struggle sometimes. But the world and Satan cannot go any further than what God has dictated. God holds them back. But Israel turned against God. Israel had forsaken God and now God has removed his arm. He's removed his hand from the enemy. He lets the enemy come in completely. God has let the enemy destroy. He has let them come further than they have ever come before. And he's burned like like a flaming fire. He's burned against Jacob like a flaming fire which devours round about. I don't know if you've ever walked through a forest after a bushfire has gone through it. But I strongly doubt that you will find or come across a small flower in a clearing that has avoided the fire because the fire thought it's too pretty to destroy You won't come across a baby animal that has been spared from the heat because the fire thought it was too innocent. Fire has no concern for such things. It devours all, destroys all. And this is what God's anger is likened to. There's no pity in it. His anger towards sin is that great. burned like a fire. The word flaming here can also be used to describe the tip of a spear or the tips or the tongues of fire. Both Both are dangerous. And God burned all around Israel, all around Judah, destroying them consuming them. There 
is no pity in them. And the reason for this is because God has become like an enemy. God has become like an enemy. And this is the second point today. He's become like an enemy. Now God didn't change where he stood. Israel had changed the relationship. Israel had moved away from God and put themselves into opposition against him. And so God now acts like an enemy towards them. In verses 4 and 5, we find he had bent his bow like an enemy. He stood with his right hand as an adversary and slew all that were pleasant to the eye in the tabernacle of the daughter of Zion. He poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was as an enemy. He had swallowed up Israel. He had swallowed up all her palaces. He had destroyed his strongholds and had increased in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. God behaved like an enemy towards Israel and towards his people. He bent his bow. And one does not generally draw a bow unless they intend to fire it at a target. It doesn't make a lot of sense to load an arrow into a bow, draw it back, and then decide, oh, I'm not going to fire it. God has drawn his bow against Judah. And God's aim is never off. His right hand is, is stood with his right hand as an adversary. Now this could all be keeping with the illustration of God drawing back a bow. Usually you would hold the bow with your left hand and you would draw with your right. So you could, this could be following this example. God holding the arrow ready to fire. Or it could simply be because most people fight with the sword in their right hand that God is holding a sword ready to slay. And slay he did and slew, and slew all that were pleasant to the eye in the tabernacle of the daughter of Zion. He slew all the pleasant things. Now when it comes to conquering a, a land, the main objective is to take as much as possible, to claim as much for yourself. So when you come in and take a city, you le try to leave much of the infrastructure. You try to capture all of the pleasant things. However, when it comes to dealing with revolts and rebellions, the goal changes. One, the conqueror uses harsher measures to pacify the people, to send a message to others that would rebel, that this is what happens. This is what happens when you go against us. This is what happens when you revolt. And all history is full of this. When there was a slave rebellion in the Roman Empire, led by Spartacus, and Rome finally defeated the slaves, all of the captured slaves were crucified from the battlefield to the gates of Rome. When the Jews rebelled against their Roman conquerors, Rome's response was to completely destroy Judea. Jerusalem was torn down. This is the response used to pacify people, to send a message to future generations or other would-be rebels. This is what happens when you rebel. 
And this is what God is doing. He's sending future generations a message. This is how I feel about sin. This is a warning. Heeded. And the warning worked. The Jews turned back to God. The sad thing though is they became so fixated on the law they couldn't even see his son when he came. They couldn't see Christ. God poured out his fury like fire. Again, no consideration was given to that which was that which looked good, or to the young, or to the ignorant. All were caught up in his wrath. The Lord was as an enemy. He swallowed up Israel. The Lord was as an enemy, and as an enemy, he left no place for him for Israel to hide, no place for the Jews to go to. He has swallowed up all her palaces. The word palaces here could also be translated as citadels or fortresses. And he destroyed all of the fortresses they had built to weather, the, weather the, the attacks of their enemies. Not only did he destroy his, their fortresses, but he destroyed his own strongholds. He had swallowed up Israel, he had swallowed up all her palaces, he had destroyed his strongholds. The places that God had established for his people to run to, run to, to find refuge, he destroyed. Not even those places would offer safety to the, his people. He was evicting them from the land and there was no place they could hide. He had made those places for his people for those that were faithful to him. But they had turned against him. And so they would not even find safety in those places. And had increased in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentations. This is something that we might not fully understand in this day and age. In this country where we are so blessed not to suffer under constant fear attack. This was a time of perpetual death in Judah. Husbands and sons would go out to fight and not return. Families would waste away from starvation as their cities were besieged. Some would, be t would become so desperate that they would start to eat their own children. When the city's walls were breached, fear and panic would grip the people as most would be slaughtered. And if somebody was spared and captured, all they had to look forward, forward to was a, nothing but a life of slavery. They would be forced to work and labour with nothing but that which the, their new masters gave them. This was a time of great mourning and lamenting. As their enemies overran them, as they came to realize how far they had moved away from God. God had become like an enemy. And as an enemy, he removed from them all of the privileges he had given them. He had revoked those privileges. 
is what we find in verses 6 and 7. And he hath violently taken away his tabernacle, as if it were of a garden. He hath destroyed his places of the assembly. The Lord hath caused the solemn feasts and sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion, and hath despised in the indignation of his anger the king and the priest. The Lord hath cast off his altar. He hath abhorred his sanctuary. He hath given up into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord, as in the day of a solemn feast. The Lord revokes the privileges of Israel and of Judah. The places where they came to meet him and have a relationship with him are taken away. The tabernacle here is the temple. And it wasn't just simply pulled down, but it was violently taken away. It was violently destroyed with such force that it made it look easy. He had violently taken away his tabernacle as if it were of a garden. The great and beautiful temple, made of stone and decorated, was likened to a small shed in the garden that was easily destroyed and pulled down. This was the force of God's work. The places of assembly also were destroyed. He had destroyed the places of the assembly. His people would have no place to come and worship him. The temple and its surrounding grounds were destroyed. Places of assembly were where the people would stand and praise him or come during the feasts. now they had no place to meet now they had no place to come and so the feasts and the, the solemn feasts and the sabbaths are forgotten as the people are dragged away into foreign lands and the city is less, left silent and the Jews would never have been able to hold their solemn feasts or observe the sabbath day while they were slaves a slave had no right to come to their master and tell him, I'm taking Saturday off. Or ever, I'm taking every Saturday off. The master would probably laugh, tell them to get back to work, and if they didn't, they would be whipped. The slave would not be able to come and say, this is a, a solemn feast day, I'm taking it off. The master again would laugh, whip them and tell them to get back to work. There would be no time for those things. God had revoked them. And he had despised in the indignation of his anger the king and the priest. Here it seems we find a special type of anger directed towards the king and the priest. God had established both the kingly line and the priesthood. When the Jews had come to God and demanded a king, God let them pick their king, and that king had failed miserably. And so God then told, showed them which king they should have. He established that kingly line, and the priesthood he also established to, to, to minister in the temple, to teach others, to perform the sacrifices. And both the kingly line and the priesthood were there to guide the people, to protect them, not just simply from enemies, but from bad influences, to ensure that they kept following God. 
But both of these had become corrupted and had failed in their duty to guide the people. They hadn't just simply failed, but they had been the, among the primary instigators for leading the people astray. It were the kings that let the influences enter the land. And it was the priests that stood by and did nothing. God's anger was especially great against those who had the responsibility and the authority to prevent such things from happening. And so he dissolves both the kings and the priests. The Lord hath cast off his altar. The place where the sacrifices were made was removed. The Jews only performed sacrifices because it was done out of ritual. There was no heart or love in it. It had become more of a hindrance. The sweet, what used to be a sweet fragrance to God of a faithful people, now it simply become a bad smell in his nostrils. And he did away with it. He abhorred his sanctuary. He despised the place where he once met with his people. His sanctuary had been polluted. It had ceased to be fit for the Lord to enter in. The Lord would not meet with his people. He had revoked that privilege. And so in doing this, he let the enemy come in to destroy it all. He had given up into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They had made a noise in the house of the Lord as in the day of a solemn feast. To add insult to injury, not only did the enemy overrun the city and the temple, but they began to, to triumph and celebrate inside the temple and praise their own gods for conquest over this so-called one and true God. God allowed them their small victory. He allowed them to destroy it all. And in verses 8 and 9 we see the consequence or the results of God's wrath. The Lord hath purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He had stretched out a line. He had not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore he made the rampart and the wall to, to lament. They languished together. Her gates are sunk into the ground. He had destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles. The law is no more. Her prophets also find no vision from the Lord. The Lord purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. We must understand that this was not some, simply some blind rage that the Lord was in. He wasn't just simply acting as someone who is just full of rage and not even thinking about his reactions that he's doing. There is a point and purpose. The Lord has planned it all out. His purpose to destroy, his plan to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. And in planning so, he stretched out a line. He, the line he refers to, a 
line that would be stretched out both in constructing something and destroying something to show what we, where a building block would go or where a, something would be cut or torn down. He methodically judged his people. And once he set his hand to the task, he would not stop until it was finished. And once God begins a work, he makes sure it is completed. That's either when he's doing the great work of love and compassion or the harsh work of judging his people. He did not withdraw his hand from destroying. And therefore he made the rampart and the wall to, to lament. They languished together. The wall that offered protection to the people, the wall that the Jews had come to rely on more than God was torn down and now sit in ruins. Not only the wall was destroyed, but the gates shared in this fate. Her gates are, sat, are sunk into the ground. It destroyed and broken her bars. The great gates that would hold the enemy at bay or letting friends in were torn off the hinges, burned, buried, and the bars that held the gates together were torn off and destroyed. The wall would offer no resistance and the gate would never be never offer any protection either. God decreed that the gates and the walls would be destroyed and that decree was followed through. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles. Rank offered no protection. From the highest to the lowest, God's judgment was full. He was, as I said, evicting his people from the promised land. None would be allowed to stay. They had let pagans come and influence them, and so to the pagans they were sent. The law is no more. God gave to the Jews the law to help guide them and to show them how they ought to live. But in their sin, they decided to ignore the law. And so God removed it from them. It was a privilege to have it. But in slavery, they would be under a new law, and that is the law of the Babylonians and the law of their new masters. The Jews who had ignored the law, ignored the law found themselves under a harsher law. Her prophets also find no vision from the Lord. Many of the prophets did not warn the people like they should have about the coming judgment. In fact, many told the people that everything was all right, that God would save them, that God wasn't angry. But God no longer would talk to his people. The relationship had been severed. Their sin had taken them away from God. 
God's anger is very real. And we tend to dwell on the love and compassion and the grace and mercy of God. We also need to remember that God grows angry at our sin. God does not change. And what he grew angry back in those days, he grows angry at now, especially amongst his own people. Now, there are those that say that there is two gods of the Bible. There is an angry and vengeful and wrathful God of the Old Testament and a loving and compassionate and merciful God of the New Testament. But there is only one God of the whole Bible. And you will find his love and his compassion in both the New and the Old Testament. And you will find his anger and his wrath in the Old and New Testament. This is why there is so much effort and time spent telling us we ought to live right. The Israelites were told in Leviticus chapter 11 verse 44 that God is holy and they ought to be holy as well. Be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. And that same commandment is given unto us in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 15 to 16. The reason for this is because God grows angry at our sin. He chastens us to correct us. But if we ignore that chastening, if we continue to live habitually in sin, then we should also continually live in fear of God's vengeance, God's wrath towards that sin. Oh, he still loves his people. And he still loves us even though we sin. But God also grows very angry towards that sin that we especially when we ignore his loving pleas to return. Let's close our way. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we just do thank you, Lord, for the um, warning, Lord, about your anger, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would just um, help us and guide us from sin, Lord, and that you would just uh, keep us in your love and that uh, you would just help us to be vigilant towards sin in our lives help us to keep a short record and that you'll just continue to keep us safe Lord and live faithfully for you. Lord we pray that you would just uh, work in our lives and help us and seek us uh, help us to seek to be holy like you Lord in Jesus name.